You know, over the years, I've realized that whether or not you go to church or you call yourself a Christian, most people believe that God in one way or another is a judge, that God will judge right and wrong. Some of you yourself have these tattoos or you have a friend who has that tattoo that says only God can judge me. For those of you who believe in karma, you believe that God judges people not just in the, for eternity, but you believe that God judges people here and, and now. Most of us, in some capacity, if we have a, a framework for the existence of God, we believe that one day God will judge right and wrong. The challenge that most of us have, though, is that the New Testament introduces concepts about God that are much different than just as a judge. And certainly God is uh, a God of justice and will one day separate the, the wheat from the tear, and he will call right, right, and wrong, wrong. But in the New Testament, you see concepts and images emerge that are just so foreign to this concept of a judge. One of these, probably the, the biggest one, is the concept that God is a father. You know, when Jesus first started walking the scene and started teaching, the thing that would make people so angry about what Jesus was teaching, they would be so angry that they'd be picking up rocks, ready to throw these rocks at his head, was the fact that Jesus was saying that God was his father. Not just any father, but God was his Abba Daddy. That he could have intimacy, real connection with God, the creator, in the same way that someone could have that type of connection and parenting from their father in their home. Now, that was brand new. Jesus brought this concept to religion and the way that we would see God. And for many people, it's the question of, well, which one is it? Is God a judge that's going to judge right from wrong? Or is God a father who will parent us and love us? And the answer is yes. You know, growing up, one of the coolest things about my household growing up was that my mother was the first female and the first black judge in, in our city. Yes, give it up for that. And growing up, I got to witness the both and of what it means to live with both a person as a, a parent and as, as a judge. You know, when I was younger, um, particularly on days after school when I didn't have anything that was going on, my parents never trusted me to be home by myself, and that was, that was a well-earned uh, designation. And there would be time, from time to time after school when I didn't have basketball practice or something going on, Instead of going home, I would go to the courthouse. And when I got to the courthouse, my experience from the, from the judges, from everybody else there was completely different than everybody else's experience. You see, when a normal person walks into a courthouse, the first thing you have to do is you have to walk through the metal detectors. And then you have to wait in a long line to finally see the judge. And when it's your turn to see the judge, you don't speak until the judge tells you it's your turn to speak. And then lawyers, everybody in the courtroom they all wait for the judge to give them permission to do everything. You can't just walk up to the judge without permission. You have to first ask for permission to come close because the nature of the relationship between a judge and the person being judged is formal, it's rigid, and it's not something that any of us would feel like it gives life. Any of you who've been to court recently, I don't think you ever left the courtroom thinking, ah, oh, man, that judge was just so wonderful and just so warm. And... But my experience in the courthouse was very different. When I would get there as a teenager, I never walked through the metal detectors. She would tell the court officers that I was coming and they would walk me around. 
I never waited on a line to go in the courtroom. They would escort me from the steps of the courthouse, around the metal detectors, into the judge's chambers. That's where my mother's Cheez-Its were. <laughs> and for an hour or two, I would sit in the chambers eating Cheez-Its. The experience of a son, of a child, of a daughter is, is much different than that of a person being judged. Now, my mother never lost her authority. That authority, that judgment was just never exercised on me because I had become a child. I was a child. Now, the way that we should understand God is that God, in, in many ways, is like that. God is all-powerful. All you know, one of the things I think our, our generation gets a little off, a lot off, actually, is I think we, we play around with God like God is the one to play with. And um, God is not the one to play with. Scripture says that God is holy. He, he's different. You don't just approach someone holy. You don't approach something holy with, within, with irreverence. And I, I'm afraid that our culture treats God like another thing just to be tacked on to our lives. Simultaneously, though, I think we also live in, in a real fear that we don't also, we don't know what it means to live with the Father, with a good Father, that God is our Father. So we've been in a series of Galatians, and the Apostle Paul writes this letters to the church in Galatia, and Galatia was this region of churches in what's modern-day Turkey now, and Paul writes this letter to this group of churches to settle a little controversy. There had been these two big groups that were starting to have a theological battle. One group of people grew up as Jewish Christians, a group as Jewish people, and they found Jesus. And after discovering Jesus or Jesus finding them, they thought to themselves, if we really want to be good Christians, we need to st still keep doing the Jewish law that we were growing up on. And yet there's another group of people who are what's known as Gentiles. And the Gentiles grew up under Roman pagan religion. Judaism for them was something that was brand new. And the Jewish Christians started to tell them, like, yo, if you want to be official tissue, you really want to follow Jesus. Not only do you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior, but simultaneously you also need to do all of these Jewish customs. And for the first number of pages in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes to correct a theological error, a heresy. And Paul lets the church know that their standing with God is based on what Jesus has done, and that's it. And you can't add any of your little righteousness to Jesus' righteousness because his is enough. Now, as this book turns thematically, it's making a turn away from correction to now giving us a vision of what you should have. So this letter is not just all about correcting people. It's also about painting a vision of what is the goal of the Christian life. Let me ask you this right now. What is your goal? Why are you here today? What do you hope comes out of your relationship with Jesus? What do you hope you look like in 10 years? What do you hope you look like in 20 years? Now, the way you would answer that question really does shed light into what is the goal of the Christian life. And I want to read a scripture today which I think sheds light into what is the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not that you would learn how to navigate God like he's in the courtroom but that you would experience God as your good and your perfect father. Galatians 3.27, Paul starts it like this. He says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since 
you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now, I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of this world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Here's what Paul says is the reason that you and I should uh, live and what we should be pursuing. So that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Now, really quickly, before we dive deeply into the scripture, I want to highlight one brief thing from this text. And when you see the the writer, Paul, in this instance, talking about the goal is that they would become sons, he's not writing this to exclude women, but rather he's writing in their current economic reality. So the group of people that he was writing to lived in an economic system in which the only people who could receive an inheritance um, or an estate were male children, and usually the first male would receive the estate. So when Paul says, you are a son, he's also saying, you are an heir. He is saying what it means to be a recipient of God's grace is the same thing as it would be for the sole heir of an estate, which is a beautiful and profound truth. He is saying, in the same way that an heir doesn't have to work, they just receive. This is what it means to follow Jesus. That Jesus has earned all of our righteousness on the cross, and you and I, as sons and daughters, get to receive all of his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says it even better. It says, for God made the one who was not sin to be sin, so that you would, in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. I once heard an old black preacher preach a sermon. He said, what was the greatest thing that God ever made? And people from the crowd were shouting, the oceans and dinosaurs. He says, no, 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 no. The greatest thing that God ever made was that he made Jesus to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. And so when Paul writes this uh, letter and he talks about us being sons, uh, he's talking about the economic system so that you and I would see ourselves in the light of we receive the entire estate of Jesus' righteousness on our behalf, and we now get what he has deserved. So moving a little further, though, we're not just saying that God is like any parent because many of us have complicated relationships with our parents. Many of you grew up in households where if we were to call God your father, your first concept goes back to your father. Some of you grew up and your parents were judgmental. You got a 92 and your parents asked you what happened to the other eight points. That might have hit a little close to home for some of (laughs) y'all. So our head's going back. (laughs) If you grew up in a household where your parents were judgmental, one of the challenges in hearing that God is your father is you're always grading yourself on how well you've done. You're never able to believe that you have done good enough to earn your parents' affection because your parents withheld affection from you until you have done a better job. Like, think about how miserable that would be for the rest of your life to always live with a nagging thought in the back of your head that you could have done more. Because that is the truth. Pick a week in your life where you could not have done better. 
You can't find one. And so you live with this elusive target of trying to do better, and your relationship with God will never be marked by joy, by gratitude, by worship, by adoration. It will always be met with this subtle sense of dissatisfaction that you haven't done enough. God has come to heal us, and we need scripture to allow us to heal us of the images of what it means to be parented by God. Others of you, your parents weren't judgmental because they were never around to be judgmental. They were disconnected from you. Sometimes they were in the home and they were just concerned with their own things. Sometimes they were nowhere to be found. And for you, you kind of see God because of what, the way you see your parents is that God comes around on major events. And, you know, the big, big, big things, got to be around for that. But the small stuff, you can't imagine a God that wants to be intimately involved in every single crevice of your life. For others of us, your parents were mature, immature, and you ended up parenting your parents, and you grew up resentful of your parents because they didn't display a maturity that you wanted. And for many people like that, they struggle with the sense of a parent being an authority figure because their parents were, an author- were not an authority figure for them. Others of you, you grew up in a household um, where you sensed that your presence was just messing up the agenda. That things would, would just be a whole lot better if you weren't around. Your parents would have a whole lot better time if you weren't there to mess things up. And so you've spent your entire life learning what it means to tiptoe around things. And even now in your prayer life, you, you tiptoe around God because you don't want to be a burden. Now, Jesus come, has come to heal us of our images of, of God. And scripture, over and over again, is meant to heal us of our relationship with God. And and this is so, so, so important that we have not just an image of God as our father, but God as the perfect father, because some of you right now are in a season of life where you're just confused. You don't know where to turn to. And even worse than being confused, um, you need to know that in the midst of everything that's going on in your life right now, you have a father that wants you to turn to him that invites you to turn to him. He wants to hear. He wants to help. He wants to walk alongside you. And I would hate for you to go through confusing or difficult or challenging times by yourself. Others of you, you just feel alone. Yes, on Sunday morning when they hit the right song, they play your song, you feel like you're with God, but as soon as you leave those doors, you, you feel alone again. And it's because functionally, you're living like God is an absentee in your life. So when you go through the difficulties of life, you feel alone. You don't sense God's presence walking with you. You don't sense the realness of God and the truth that God promises us in Scripture to never leave you or forsake you. You know, one of the things I think about in my own life as a good litmus test is uh, whether or not I'm able to go to sleep. Um, When Jordan is is overcome by anxiety and concerns, it's usually because... um, I believe that it's all up to me. I don't believe that I have a God who is my father who neither slumbers nor sleeps. And so since he's up, I can go to sleep. So Galatians 3 is meant to push us towards this awareness, this realization of what God has come to do in our lives. God has not come to make you an employee. God has not come to make you a better student. God has not come to make you cross the T's better and dot the I's with more proficiency. God has come to make you his own. The goal of the Christian life for your life, the greatest goal that you could ever experience is to experience what it means to be adopted by God, to be his. 
You know, I, I love reading the New Testament. One of the best things to do when you read the New Testament, particularly the short letters, is to read the whole thing from cover to cover. Or, I mean, some of these books like First John, you can read it like in six minutes. It's not a very long book. And if you read it in little verses here and there, you'll miss out on some stuff. But if you read First John, for example, in its entirety, what you'll see is that when the author gets to First John 3, he just starts getting hyped. You can see the emotional tenor of the, of the text start to change. And he says, oh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And so the great goal of your life, more than being a faithful servant at Renaissance, more than having the job, the promotion, more than having the family and the kids and the apartment, the great goal of your life is that you should experience and you might experience what it means to be God's child. Verse 27, Paul says like this, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So this is the first profound statement that Paul says. So the American understanding of clothing is very different than uh, the ancient Hebrew understanding of clothing. When Paul says what it means to be in relationship with God, what it means to be baptized into Christ is that you have been clothed with Christ. What Paul is saying is that you have been changed. And clothing represents not just something that is an external thing that makes you look good, but it represents who you are. It is like a spiritual state. You know, I can think back with a lot of specificity to the day that I became a sneakerhead. Uh, my parents bought me the Jordan 5 grape and, and these like purple and, and teal. It was very 90, oh, 80s at this point um, colors. And I'll never forget the first time putting those sneakers on my feet. I heard the Gatorade song, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. I, I heard the song playing in my head and I ran through my apartment, my house, and I was in my brain, I believed that I was Michael Jordan. I wasn't Jordan Rice anymore. I was Michael Jordan. The problem was when I got to the court, I was still Jordan Rice. Putting those shoes on might have made me look different, but it didn't make me actually any different. And so our, our understanding of clothing is like that, that you put on clothes and that's just something that you wore for the day, but it doesn't change your identity. It doesn't change your purpose. It doesn't change who you are fundamentally. But the ancient Hebrew understanding of clothing was that it changed you fundamentally. Here's what it says in Isaiah 6, 61 and 10. He says, I greatly rejoice in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So here's what the author of, here's what Isaiah is saying in this text about the importance of, of clothes that, you know, one of the things I get to do here at Renaissance as a pastor is to perform weddings. And I love seeing the bride and the groom all dressed up. And when everybody's all dressed up, that's when people start to get nervous because they know it's real. It's really happening. It's really going down. Um, putting on the wedding dress, the bride putting on, the groom putting on his tux, like it, it changes them. They are now the groom for the day. All eyes are on the bride and the groom. You're not going to just treat them any old kind of way. Why? Because this is the bride and the groom. These clothes have transformed not just what they look like, but who they are. They've taken on a new title and a new role that day completely. And this is what Isaiah says that God clothes us in his salvation in the same way that a groom and a bride have been transformed by their 
wedding gear. You know, first of all, shout out to all the people getting married, all the grooms. Y'all be doing it better now. When I got married the first time, um, I was rocking the patent leather, rental shoes. They don't do that no more. Yeah, people getting swaggy these days. Um, <laughs> I had the cheap suit with the little cheap vest like people wore to their proms. All right. <laughs> and I should say, too, like uh, many of you are new also, my wife and I are both widowed, and uh, that was my first. That was a long story. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Luke 15. Um, Luke 15 is another account where you see someone's clothing change who they are, right? So the story of the father and his two sons, and it's one of the most profound stories in the Bible. It's actually probably one of the most profound stories in literature. It's a story that Jesus tells about a father with two sons. One of his sons wants his share of the inheritance early. He goes off to a distant country, spends everything. A famine happens. He's broke, busted, and disgusted. In his brain, he says, I'm going to go home because everybody in my father's house eats well, even the servants. So I'm going to go home and ask my father to be a servant, and hopefully I will be able to eat uh, solid meals by myself there. As soon as the father sees his son a ways off, the scripture says he runs to him, and as soon as his son gets close, it says, the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now, the father could have just, and then they they went on and had a party. The father could have just pronounced these things over his son, but he actually made him change his clothes. Why is that? Because in ancient Hebrew tradition, a change of clothes meant a change of status. You were no longer what you used to be. The old had passed and the new had arrived. To put on a robe meant that the father was restoring his position as a son. Not just any robe, but the best robe. He was signifying to his son and everybody looking around, this my son who had run away, who had done all the wrong things, is now restored with all the full rights and privileges. Not just that, but he put a ring on his finger. In ancient times, a ring meant authority. So when you see a king like uh, the Pharaoh in Genesis give Joseph his ring, he was giving Joseph authority. So the father says, not only have you been restored as a son, but I'm I'm putting a ring on your finger to let people know, to let you know that you now have the authority. And he put sandals on his feet. In those days, the only people who walked around without shoes were people who were extremely destitute because uh, they were servants or, or slaves. And when the father ordered shoes to be brought out and put on his feet, he said for the third and final time that he was not to be treated as a servant, but as a son with all of the entitlements of that. So when Paul says, we have been clothed with Christ, he's saying, you are not to be treated based on your own, what you have earned or what you have done, but you and I are clothed with Christ, and you are treated like Christ is treated. You have the restoration of what Christ has come to earn, the authority of what it means to pray in his name, and we are no longer treated as as servants but as sons. So this change does not come based on your external achievements, but rather what Christ has earned. Let's look at verse 28 and 29. Scripture says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now this is really important. 
in that society, they regarded different people, um, their different social standings determined their value in society. So Jews were more important than Greeks, free people were more important than slaves, men were more important than women, and Paul eliminates this distinction for the purpose of your standing with God. He's saying it doesn't matter what anybody thinks on the outside, your standing with God does not change based on what you, you're standing in society. And here's why that is so important. He says a word in this, because we are heirs. The only thing that matters to an heir is what you have received. The only thing that matters to an heir is the value of your inheritance. It doesn't matter what you have done really in your life. It matters what the person who's passing down the estate has done. If they got the bag, you're going to get the bag. If they don't have anything, you're not going to get anything. And I want us to go back a little bit to their society and to think about it. In, in our current society, you know, you can get a job. Many of you have come to New York to make a difference in your life. Some of you have progressed far beyond what your parents have done in society. That was not the case in these days. Economically, you were bound by how much you can receive. If your estate was limited, you would be limited. An heir was the most important thing about you. So let's keep going. In Galatians 4 and 4, it says this. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. This scripture is so profound that I hope to do it a little bit of justice. What is the scripture talking about? There's a huge difference between modern adoption and ancient adoption. Modern adoption is generally done for the purposes of love, that parents want to bring some love into their home, and so they adopt. Sometimes it's the relative of a family member who has passed or is no longer able to care for the child. Other times it's, it's parents who make the intentional choice to adopt, and as beautiful and as praiseworthy as adoption in our modern setting is, that is not what they're talking about in this setting. In ancient times, adoption was not done for the purposes of love. It was done for economic reasons. In that society, like I mentioned, their economic reality was that you were bound to what you can either inherit or give away. You were not able to give that money away to your cousins, to Bebe and them. It had to go to an heir, a male heir that could receive your estate. Now listen to this. Even adults, people, grown adults, would be bound by what is called the potter familius. There was one head of household, one male, who passed down his estate to someone else. And that other person would inherit uh, what it meant to be a potter familius, and then he would be the head of the household. And your entire reality would be based on what you received. It didn't matter what school you went to, what, what kind of degrees, how hardworking you were, or how hardworking you were not. Your reality was based on what you could receive as a person. So check it, every now and then there would be a paterfamilias that did not have a male heir to pass their, their estate down to, so they would adopt. And they would take someone from an orphanage, or they would take someone who previously was not going to receive anything, and then this person would be in line to receive an entire estate. 
So Paul, when he says these words, so that we might receive adoption as sons, yes, he's meant to stir our emotions, but more than that, he's talking about the declaration and the, the reality of how much this would profoundly change someone's life. Their life would change the instant the person died. As soon as that person died, they would automatically receive the entirety of their estate, even though they had not worked for it, and even though they hadn't even lived with this person. Oftentimes, the person who was adopted didn't even, did not even love the person who was passing down their estate, and yet they received everything. Paul says the closest thing to what it means to belong to Jesus is that, that even if you don't have love for the person who has passed down the estate, what he has accomplished, what he has amassed, the righteousness that he gained on the cross, it comes to us. Francis Lyle, in his book on citizens, sons, and slaves, talked about adoption. And he says this. He says, the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and was placed in a new relationship of son to his new father, his new paterfamilias, head of household. All his old debts are canceled. And in effect, the adoptee started a new life as a part of his new family. From that time on, the paterfamilias had the same control over his new child as he had over his natural offspring. The father was liable for the actions of the adoptee, and each owed each other their reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. Now, that boy who previously was in line for nothing would now receive an estate, would receive property, which would put him in line to be the head of his own household, and all of his previous labels of slave or servant or outsider meant absolutely nothing. Some of you have come to church with a lot of baggage, and you are afraid that based on what you have done in your life disqualifies you from a life with God. And that's because you are living in a different economically, economic reality than what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you don't earn, you inherit. And if your righteousness is inherited from God, then it doesn't matter what you had or didn't have in the past. What you stand to gain is what Christ has earned for us. And so Paul says this so that we could be free to be God's children, so that you would experience the fullness of what it means to be adopted. So you would experience the freeness of what it means to not be wallowing in, in guilt. So you would experience the beauty of what the gospel is intending to communicate to us. That what it means to place your faith in Christ is to be an heir, to be a son, to experience that adoption. Scripture says in Romans that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, for everybody, once you place your faith in Christ, and you could do that today here on doing the prayer line, what God gives us is his Holy Spirit. And Scripture says the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are his and teaches us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit teaches us that we are adopted. You know, but that reality, a lot of times in, when I read scriptures, I think about the truth that exists in my head and has not yet made its way to my heart. Because I just, I'm, I'm just so prone to beat myself up for my areas of shortcoming as if it depends on me. You know, one of the best ways I know how to describe this, and if you've been around Renaissance for a little bit, you might have heard me tell this story. Um, but it's one of the most beautiful and accurate ways for us to understand what it means to be adopted by God. 
One of my friends adopted a boy from South Africa, and it was a pretty long process, over a year of just flights back and forth all the way across the Atlantic Ocean um, to fill out paperwork and to do interviews, and there was so much money that she spent, and there was so much work that she had to do, and so much she had to put up with to adopt this boy. But one day, after months and months and years of paperwork and interviews, he was finally coming home to be with her. The adoption was finalized. I'll never forget, a group of us went to JFK to welcome him. We had all these balloons and toys and candies, and it was a beautiful, beautiful day to be a part of. A couple of weeks later, I asked her, I said, hey, how's everything going uh, with your son? How's he acclimating to, to life in New York City? I was thinking that the biggest challenge for him would be going from South Africa to New York City, but that wasn't the case. His biggest challenge wasn't a new culture. It was going from the orphanage to a home. She said that one day, she realized that she couldn't find any of his toys. And she was thinking to herself, I must be losing my mind because I know we bought this boy barrels of toys. He ain't got nothing but toys. And some of the snacks that he loved the most were also missing from the cabinet. And then she said one day, she realized that he had been hiding everything that was precious to him under his bed. Because in the orphanage, if you had something valuable, people would steal it. So he had to hide it in his own mind. And even though he had been adopted, flown thousands of, mile, thousands of miles away from the orphanage, he was still living like he was an orphan. You know, there's so many of us that hear the theological truth, that have placed our faith in Christ, and hear that God has told us we are adopted, we receive his inheritance, and we say, yep, that sounds good, that sounds good. Let me store my own little righteousness under the bed. And God comes to us, not to chastise us, but to say, where are you? Look around. You're home. If you'll allow yourself, if you'll allow me to love you, I will. The limit to which you are loved by God is the limit to which you and I open ourselves up to be loved by God. So many of us are living like we're in an orphanage, rattled with fear, anxiety about what's next, feeling alone, and it's just because that journey of this profound theological truth just takes time to catch up from our heads to our hearts. You know what? I hope you all live a long life. And by the time you're 99 years old, you'll still be fighting probably on a daily basis to live more into what it means to be adopted and to experience this adoption. And one of the things we talk about a lot at Renaissance are the means of grace. The means of grace are the means by which God puts his love into our hearts. These are things like fasting and prayer and scripture. And one of the worst ways to kill the means of grace is to turn it into something else that you have to do or else God will be mad at you for not doing it. But what if it was an invitation for God to meet you, for God to show you the refrigerator that's full of food, for God to show you the toys that he's yet to give you, for God to give you a glimpse of what it means to be permanent, to show you the papers that are signed, sealed, and delivered to say, you don't have to live like you're in an orphanage. You are home. And so I want to close us today actually with some, some silence, uh, a moment for you to pray, to assess how much you feel alone and living on this success-failure basis, feeling condemned and guilty, defensive or ungrateful, and rather what it means to be an heir, to be receiving Christ's righteousness on our behalf, to be adopted.
So we're going to have about 30 seconds of prayer in silence. Jesus, don't let us settle for suspicions of the orphanage when you want us to lay around the house comfortable. Don't let us hoard our little self-righteousness when the inheritance of your righteousness is what we are owed. Don't let us live like you are judging us when you have come to save us. Don't let us live for ourselves and hoard the beauty of your gospel to ourselves, but let us share it widely. Jesus, make the reality of our adoption real in our hearts. Holy Spirit, you know the the nagging accusations in the courtroom of our heads. We ask that you would speak louder and you would guide us into opportunities of silence to hear from you. Jesus, may may we be a people marked not by what we can do, but by the cross and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.